Welcome back to the second series of Unlocking the SDGs, a blueprint for the future. In this podcast, we explore the UN Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, and what they mean for society. I'm Professor Preeti Parekh, Professor of Infrastructure Engineering and International Development at UCL, Bartlett School of Sustainable Construction. And I'm Professor Monica Lackenpaul, Professor of Integrated Community Child Health in the UCL Great Ormond Street Institute for Child Health. The implementation of the SDGs is a global priority, but realising the goals has financial costs attached to it. Today, we'll be unpacking the competing priorities around the implementation of the SDGs and the challenges countries face in achieving the goals, both at home and abroad. This episode was recorded in autumn 2023. Our guests today are Dr. Aida Kubicheski, Associate Professor at the UCL's Institute for Global Prosperity, and Dr. Kate Roll, Associate Professor at the UCL Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. Welcome. Hi, Priti and Monica. Really looking forward to speaking with you guys. Hi there. Great to be here today. Earlier this year, world leaders met at the Paris Summit to discuss how international financial frameworks can be reformed to better address global inequality. Dr. Kubicheski, can you please give me a bit of background to those issues? I think it's important to remember how our financial framework systems institutions got created and why. Most of them were created in the 1950s after the Great Depression, after World War II. Europe was basically destroyed and we needed a way to measure financial activity, financial transactions. And that's what the system was built for, to create a better Europe. Even Simon Kuznets, who developed GDP, which is one of our biggest measures of progress these days, warned against using it for certain things. So he said, and I quote, the welfare of a nation can scarcely be inferred from a measurement of national income as defined by GDP. Goals for more growth should specify of what and for what. And I think that's really important to remember that GDP is very limited in what it can do. It counts everything as positive. You have an oil spill, that area will probably have see a growth in GDP. There's a lot of things that GDP shouldn't count as positive, but it does. It also doesn't take into account inequality, which has been shown to be critical within society. Whether one person owns all the wealth in a country or it's equally distributed, GDP doesn't care. And it also misses out a lot of important things like volunteer work, having a home garden, a parent staying home with a child. And so I think it's important to remember the limitations of GDP and use it for what it was designed to do. Going back to the SDGs, currently no country is on track to meet them. No country is even able to measure all the SDG indicators. There's 17 goals, 169 targets, about 620-something indicators. Not even developed countries can measure them. And the UN has recently realized that it's out of reach for all countries. And they're starting a process redoing the SDGs to come up with about 20 indicators. And these 20 indicators will sort of lead into whatever follows after the SDGs in 2030. 
And so if we put funding into the SDGs, which I do think is important, what do we put them into? With 17 goals, 169 targets, X amount of indicators, what do we focus on? There's been a lot of research showing that although some of the goals show synergies, some of them don't. You put money into one and it reduces another. So which one do we actually put money into? There's no one single goal that the SDGs thrive for. Do we need one? Is it well-being of humans and the rest of the planet? Do we need a single target? And maybe that's why GDP was so successful. It's one number that people can say it's going up, it's going down, good, bad. And I think we do have to focus on inequality. The question was, how do we address global inequality? And that's a critical one because it has so many impacts. And we have to remember that the world has consciously and directly reduced inequality before. Between about 1910 and 1980, we went from average inequality in developed countries in about 20% to single digits. And then the Reagan-Thatcher era kind of undid a lot of that. So we can do it if we set our minds to it and we make that a priority and a goal. And honestly, we can't afford not to reduce inequality in different countries. Inequality is what creates social unrest, but it also reduces life expectancy, maths and literacy, trust in our community, social mobility, and it increases things like infant mortality, homicide, imprisonment, teenage births, obesity, mental illness. So it has a lot of indirect consequences that are really important to keep in mind. Ada, thank you so much for clearly setting out that whilst GDP is an easy measure, which is used most extensively, it's not the right measure if we are looking at a just and equitable society. Well, just moving on then, I think we have to think about the proposed ways that we can address these issues. And we know that the UN has proposed some strategies or some ways that we could think about this more. So, Kate, I really would like you to just summarize for us what the UN has proposed. I think Ida really started us off in the right place in talking about international financial architecture. You know, exactly these idea, this idea that the Bretton Woods institutions aren't really fit for purpose. And that looking at this current challenge faced by low-income countries, you know, high levels of debt in US dollars, high interest rates, and climate vulnerability, that we really need to be rethinking the whole system. And that's really what this you know, recent Paris summit was about and where a lot of this UN activity is focusing. So it's looking at that architecture and really looking at how can we change that to address what's sometimes called the billions to trillions problem. Currently, there's billions being invested in climate finance and in, in climate change mitigation, but really it needs to be trillions with a T. And so the recent Paris summit, a lot of this work that's been going on by the UN and other actors is really trying to build momentum up to the upcoming um, COP28 in Dubai, which will take place in November. I think this, this sort of compound set of issues uh, for low-income countries, the debt, the interest rates, the climate vulnerability, this has been a real focus. And probably the most interesting set of proposals has actually not necessarily come from the UN, but has come from what's called the Bridgetown Initiative, which has been led by Mia Motley, who's the Prime Minister of Barbados. And it's been sort of one of the clearest articulations of 
what needs to be changed um, in this international financial architecture, which we inherited from the post-World War II era. And there's really four pillars. And so the first is really around increasing public funding around climate mitigation, looking to some of these big multinational, uh, multilateral lenders and doing what's sometimes called concessional finance, where giving lending at below market rates, making more finance available through some um, smart moves. And so just trying to bring more public funding and more um, multilateral funding into this space. And then the second part, which really follows on from the first, is trying to increase or what we sometimes call crowd in private finance. So by public finance, you know, leading the way, helping to de-risk or helping to identify and develop certain areas for, for funding, private finance and philanthropic finance is more likely to follow. And so that's a really important thing because, again, you know, where is the money coming from to be able to address climate vulnerability and the other aspects of the 17 SDGs? SDGs, remember, not, are not just about climate. And then you know, the third sort of pillar of the Bridgetown Initiative is really looking at the rules around lending. So, you know, there's really interesting sort of suggestions like if a country has just experienced a climate re- climate related disaster like the flooding in Pakistan, there will be suspension of interest rate payments. Um, and this has actually already been adopted by the World Bank for new grants. And there's there's sort of growing pressure to have this apply to all grants. But that's been sort of a really interesting way of looking at the current rule set and saying, if we can tweak here, if we can look at um, these these type of rules, maybe we can start to open up more opportunities. And then the final piece is, is reconstruction grants and just mobilizing more finance. I think just you know beyond the Bridgetown Initiative, this there's a lot of interesting discussion on a few other areas. And I just want to highlight one, which is around tax and tax reform. And so there's both been interest around things like where would we either mobilize more financing and whether that's coming from emissions trading, which has been popular among some European nations, or increasing tax on fossil fuel companies, or tax on shipping emissions. Um, and then also, you know, building on what happens in, in Addis to think about what we call BEPs, base erosion and profit shifting. So, you know, making sure that, you know, companies are pay- paying their fair share, are not doing tax avoidance and making sure that taxes are coming into countries so that they can invest in things like health, education, climate mitigation, um, all these things that are so important and that address some of these bigger issues of inequality. So there's lots on the table right now. And I think that's sort of what made this, this Paris summit, summit interesting. But I really just wanted to highlight the, the Bridgetown Initiative in particular. While UCL's academics and researchers are playing a leading role in responding to the challenges set out by the goals, our students are also helping to achieve the SDGs. We spoke to some of our students to get their thoughts on the SDGs and how they're being addressed around the world. Today, we are asking the question, which of the SDGs is the most important for humanity to address? Hi, I'm Abigail Hunt and I'm currently studying politics and industrial relations in UCL's Department of Political Science. I think it's really tricky to pick one SDG, which is most important for humanity to address, as they all intersect and rely on one another. So thinking about SDG 4, education, 
I believe that's really, really vital to be able to achieve SDG 5 gender equality. And that is really hard to separate all the different goals. So I think that's a pretty impossible question and that they are all equally as important as one another. I am Alexander Ignatiev and I'm studying in UCL's Institute of Epidemiology and Healthcare. The most important SDG for humanity to address is Sustainable Development Goal 4, Quality Education, because it serves as a foundation for achieving many other SDGs such as poverty reduction, gender equality and climate action. Aida, I want to turn over to you because you are a climate change negotiator for the Dominican Republic. Aside from those proposals, do developed countries have an obligation to finance efforts in the developing world to achieve the goals? I think, it, especially when talking about climate change, it's important to remember that we're in this together. There is no developed development countries. There is no them and us. We're all connected. Climate change affects us all. Yes, I was a climate change negotiator um, for the Dominican Republic. Very cool experience, a major learning experience for me, having done this for the first time. It's interesting, being a negotiator shows you how many ingrained biases there are in the process. The fact that most of the negotiators are lawyers instead of scientists that know this issue in and out and realize what needs to happen. Many of the decisions are made externally from the cop. You spend a day negotiating a paragraph, you think you have settled, next day you come in and you realize that there was a bilateral meeting overnight with two presidents. They decided to go the other way based on trade agreement or based on something else that you have no idea, but all of a sudden that whole days of work is being changed. And there's a lot of other ingrained kind of issues within the process. And unfortunately, the idea of we are all in this together is lost on many. This year, it was the COP was in Egypt. Next year, it's in Dubai. Well, previous year was in Egypt. This year, it's in Dubai. Unfortunately, I couldn't attend. But I heard, for example, that there were a huge number of oil executives that went. Plan is for them to go next year, too. And so what message are we sending with the COP? How can we make it better? How can we ensure that the individuals that will be most impacted by climate change are protected before and after? This is going back 15 years, but the Stern Review did show that if we invest about 1% of global GDP per year, we can deal with climate change. If we don't, we'll have to put in about 5 to 20% of global GDP per year now and forever because the, those costs will start growing. And we've seen those consequences in the UK already. The hot weather we're having right now. Yes, we do usually have a few hot days here and there, but first time we hit 40 degrees last year, the droughts, the some of the food shortages, the natural disasters that are impacting us indirectly. We will all feel the impacts. We are all feeling the impacts of climate change. And so we need to do, as the world, what we can to try to deal with it before the worst of the impacts do hit. Thank you for reminding us that we are all in this together. Climate change is a global challenge. In fact, I would say it's a crisis and there's a real sense of urgency that we need to address it now 
Otherwise, costs will multiply quite rapidly. And we're all aware that the UK is facing significant increases in the cost of living. There's rising poverty, food insecurity. We've got impact on homelessness and even on mental health. And the UN itself does acknowledge the impacts of the rising interest rates, the pandemic and the wars like the one in Ukraine and what it's really doing and how it's having an impact on many, many countries. So actually, some critics in the UK have argued that countries such as our own simply can't afford to increase their financial support to developing member states. So Ida, how do you respond to that? I think the question is, we can't afford not to, because the cost of living, as you mentioned, some of the other issues are happening because we are not investing in some of these global issues. Whether you're looking at climate change, whether you're looking at inequality or SDGs, they're all connected. And if we don't deal with them at a global level, things will get worse. They'll lead to disappearing land and uninhabitable conditions, mass migrations, refugees, things that UK, other developed countries are already experiencing. We can't afford not to deal with these things. You know, it's like the Stern Review and a lot of research after that has shown it's cheaper to deal with it now before it happens than deal with the consequences. And SDGs are quite often seen to be a developing country problem, but we know that is not true. They are also measure of progress in high-income countries. Kate, you contributed to a recent report on the UK's progress towards achieving the goals. Realistically, can the UK afford to finance achieving the goals, both in UK and elsewhere? Yes. So we were part of a really interesting report called the Measuring Up 2.0 report, which was jointly led by Global Compact UK, which is a really interesting organization focusing on private sector actors, and SDSN UK, which we lead out of IIPP um, at, at UCL um, and is a network of higher ed institutions. And so we broke up the SDGs, each different expert took on a chapter, and we really looked at how is the UK doing? Um, how are they really performing on the SDGs? And, you know, the findings in some way were unsurprising. You know, we're moving in the in the right direction, we're moving in a good direction, or, you know, some some setbacks with, with the pandemic, but we're not moving fast enough. It's sort of its own version of the billions to trillions problem. I think what the report also raised was that there needs to be more political will and more commitment in the UK. One sort of small example of that is that the sort of owner of the SDGs or the, the main lead of the SDGs in the UK is the FCDO, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. And that sort of says that this is viewed as something that is outside of the UK, whereas the 17 goals, you know, equally apply in the UK. These questions of climate, housing, aging, inequality. These are all UK issues that really also need to be taken on in, in a serious way. And so the Measuring Up 2.0 report was really saying UK government last reported on its own performance in 2019. Um, we really want to make sure that we're continuing to monitor that performance, even if the UK government isn't. And we really want to see more progress to keep moving in the right direction and just go a bit faster and with a bit more political commitment and attention to the SDGs. To take on the, the second part of the question about, you know, do we have the money to do this? What's sort of the financing picture in the UK? I think there's sort of a couple different questions within there. 
So the first one is sort of, do we have the money? (laughs) And then there's a question of what do we do with the money that we have? But on the first issue of do we have the money, you know, we generally think about this in terms of, again, domestic resource mobilization. You know, is the treasury bringing in enough money to repair schools, to provide universal health care, to support climate uh, adaptation, to, to help retrofit homes? You know, is the money coming in to do that? And, you know, there's a really interesting organization called the Tax Justice Network, which is really saying the UK is, is missing a trick here. UK is ranked 13th for supporting tax havens, with one being the worst. And that really reflects the UK's support of the crown dependencies and overseas territories, which are real meccas for money laundering and, and tax havens. So there's real challenges there. And you know, again, the Tax Justice Network estimates that this is a tax, a domestic tax loss every year of 44 billion, almost 6%, you know, what would, what would count as 6% of tax revenues. So this is sort of money we're leaving on the table, let alone how we're spending it. And this is an important issue in the UK. It's an even more important issue for low income countries where their tax revenues don't come close to covering their tax liabilities and they rely on lending and instruments like that to cover just the basic expenses of education, health, et cetera, infrastructure development. But it still remains an important point in the UK. So again, looking at our tax structure, looking at who we tax, looking at things like tax havens, you know, that's really important to this question of do we have the money? And that can be sort of analysis can be repeated globally. On the second, there's a lot of really again interesting work by economists around, you know, where do you invest? The SDGs you know, can be conflicting, but they're also interlocking. So spending on education, spending on health, all of these can have wonderful sort of knock-ons to productivity, to social mobility, you know, supporting a clean um, environment. So, you know, are we putting the money in the right place? And again, my institute is particularly interested in investment and the the, the role of the state in driving innovation and driving work towards creating a greener and more just future. So thinking about the role that the state can take in being really smart in helping to encourage green investment, helping encourage smart infrastructure, um, using the tools that it has and that it sort of retreated during that Thatcher era to really push forward. And we see examples of that policy initiatives and sort of the return of industrial policy in things like the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act in, in the US, where there's, you know, trying to put money into green transition and seeing that as a jobs initiative, an economic initiative, and the government really providing this, this important direction that allows, you know, more finance to flow into these areas that are going to be extremely important. So using that money wisely using that money to generate more investment. Because again, as Ida said, there's no choice here, right? And I also think that this view of, you know, do we have the money to do this? Oh, well, we don't have the money also sort of misunderstands economics in some ways where, you know, investment in people, in human capital, investment in in the environment, investment in economic innovation, that starts that flywheel going um, and and, helps generate the wealth that we need to continue to address these issues. And to ensure that we can do this investment, it seems that to achieve the SDGs globally, we actually do need to change the global financial architecture. So I did, do you really think this is realistic? I do you think it's realistic for a new approach to global finance to be more widely adopted? 
I think it depends what time frame you're talking about and under what conditions. Um, change will happen. There's no question about that. The question is whether we can manage that change smoothly or whether it'll look more like a collapse. I think that some of the developing countries especially aren't locked in to our current system completely and still have the potential to make not follow in the footsteps and make some of the mistakes that developed countries did. However, it's not going to be easy. Is it realistic? I'm not sure, actually. Um, that's a tough question. There are a lot of good people working on that. So there is an organization called the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, where it's an organization that works bottom up and top down. So bottom up, it's trying to bring together all the people that are working basically on creating this new financial framework, whether it's through inequality, through directly economics, through child health, whatever it is, um, bringing them together saying, we're all working on the same issue to make a better future. Let's work together. And it's also working from top down. So it brought together governments of New Zealand, Scotland, and Iceland. Just want to point out they were all run by women back then. Um, to come together and say, we want to focus on the well-being of our populations instead of just GDP. And so you've been hearing about sort of New Zealand released a well-being budget. Iceland is working on one and few other countries have. Those three countries have now been joined by Finland, Wales and Canada. And they meet to say, how do we actually do this? How do we get beyond GDP? and focus on the well-being of the people in our countries. And I do think that the mentalities are changing because of those this effort, but because of many others as well, mentalities out there are changing. People are re starting to realize things are not going well. Something has to change. The problem is we don't know how to make those changes yet because we're still living in that old framework men and mentality. And so we need to provide new ways forward, new institutions, and new ways of thinking of how do we create this better world. Thank you. I think, you know, you've raised some important issues. This is not going to be easy, as you say. Is it realistic? Something maybe we can explore in the future and um, a big question to be answered. Really important for us to think about what is a better future? How can we work together? What you talk about in around bottom-up, top-down approaches. But interestingly as well, you know, this well-being index you mentioned, I'm sure we'll come back to this in the future. We mustn't forget Bhutan actually was one of the first countries to think of a happiness index. And they did this quite a while ago, and now other countries are following with a well-being index. So we need to think of new ways of working, innovative ways of working. And I think, you know, we have a journey ahead of us, but thank you so much, both of you, for outlining everything so clearly for us all. Thank you both for joining us today. Where can listeners find you online, whether it's Twitter, whether it's other social media platforms? Thanks for having me. It's been great. If you're interested in some of my work, I can be found on Twitter at Ida underscore Coop. And then I have a profile on my institute's page, the Institute for Global Prosperity. And you can find a lot more information about what I've talked about and other really cool projects there. Again, I'll, I'll emphasize it's been excellent to join you all and really enjoyed this conversation. Um, so you can find my profile on LinkedIn or on my institute's website. 
the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. And I don't do Twitter myself, but you can follow IAPP at IIPP underscore UCL, um, where work by me and my colleagues um, is shared frequently. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Unlocking the SDGs. This episode was presented by me, Professor Monica Lackenpaul. And me, Professor Preeti Parikh. And produced by the UCL SDGs Initiative and edited by Frontier. Our guests today were either Kubyshevsky and Dr. Kate Roll. If you'd like to hear more about podcasts from UCL, subscribe to UCL Minds wherever you download your podcasts or visit www.ucl.ac.uk slash SDG. Join us next time on Unlocking the SDGs. Mm-hmm.